The following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. So this is week four of the intro class. And besides just reviewing the practice, I'll spend a little bit more time tonight focusing on uh, how to work with difficulties that come up in life, but specifically in meditation practice. And you might notice that practice is just a microcosm of life. So what we notice when we're formally meditating is a lot like what we notice in, in daily life. And so the whole point is to develop skillfulness. Um, in our meditation practice, which supports our skillfulness throughout the day. So just a few comments before we do a 30-minute sit tonight. In a way, we can think of the entire path of awakening as a process of learning what right effort is. Because, you know, all human beings, we know how to make effort to assert ourselves, to make willful effort. And as we silly, as we look out into the world, as we watch our own life, so much of what we do creates problems, you know. So we make an effort, and then we have to make another effort to clean up <laughs> the efforts that we've made in the past. And the United States made an effort to do something in the Middle East, and probably for a long time we'll be making efforts to clean up what we made an effort to do. And it's... You know, it happens everywhere, not just with governments, but with individuals. And it's because of this not understanding. I mean, we may be clear that something needs to be done, but it doesn't mean we know what needs to be done. And in fact, it's true. In any moment of our life, there is it, uh, uh, there is a response, in a sense, that the moment is asking for. The question is, what is the appropriate response? to the moment? What is the appropriate effort to be made in this moment? And like I mentioned a few minutes ago, sitting practice is a microcosm of living. It's not like something we do that's different than living. And sometimes people think of sitting practice as just being passive, but of course we're, it's not possible to be alive and be passive. It takes a lot of kind of wholeheartedness to stay sitting in meditation practice and not to space out. So it's a very active way to be in a moment, to meditate. It's not passive. And we're actively learning about right effort and wrong effort, or skillfulness and unskillfulness. What constitutes being skillful in a moment? What constitutes being unskillful in a moment? And fortunately, because we're cultivating awareness, we actually learn. We learn either way. Like if we actually are skillful in a particular moment, we'll notice. Because by definition, if we're skillful, things will become more peaceful and more easeful. And by definition, if we're not skillful, the heart will be more burdened, more disturbed, more discontent, more stressful. There's a beautiful definition of meditation practice that I like. And feel free to use it, to, like at the beginning of a sit, to just remind yourself 
This is a traditional description of meditation practice from the Thai forest tradition in the Theravada school of Buddhism. <clears throat> Let the body assume its natural ease. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. And then it goes on. Let the mind assume its natural ease. Now, be attentive to whatever arises to disturb this natural ease. Is that nice? It's very simple. So as much as we can, as best we can, we let the body find its natural ease as best we can. And then once the body is somewhat settled, then we just invite the mind to find its natural ease, a sense of being present and spacious, allowing things to be as much as we can, as best we can. And then we simply observe what it is, moment by moment, that arises to disturb the ease. And we get interested in those disturbances. And you see, this is the theme, especially for this week, to notice what disturbs the mind and to notice how it's possible to relate to those disturbances skillfully, in which case disturbances become transformed into non-disturbances, or we can relate to the disturbances unskillfully, in which case disturbances turn into problems and suffering. So observe that tonight in practice, and I'll give some more instructions as we're sitting. And you can remember the basic formula of ease and alertness, relaxation and alertness, or of the more complicated formula for um, assessing how the mind is, which is that acronym RAIN, learning to recognize what's predominant, to accept it, to be interested, which means letting it reveal itself, and not to be attached, to be unattached, non-attached, to whatever it is that's happening in the moment. This is the hardest. The non-attachment is really understanding that there is a natural unfolding here, and we can just let it be what it is. Let the mind and body, the circumstances at the moment, just unfold. Okay? Any questions before we begin our sit tonight? Mm-hmm. I struggled between the investigate and the non-attached. Because you're investigating it. Yeah. I'm How do you know when enough is enough? Well, it's more about the direction of the investigation. So if there's a lot of willfulness, and see, again, this goes to right effort. Like, I want to understand. Then that's, in a sense, opposing the non-attachment. So see if you can find... Find a skillful way to be interested that isn't this willful, I want to understand. So it's more of an innocence or a, like letting the moment reveal itself, letting something reveal itself. Not a sense that you have to go to it, but that you're being undefended or are exposed to what is. So, like, I think, did I tell you about that? It's just a kind of a mind game, but. You know, when you're driving along the freeway, not when you're driving, when you're a passenger, someone else is driving, and you're a passenger going along the freeway, usually we think we're moving into the world, right? We're, we're moving past or going into the next space. But it's actually very easy to relax your mind a little bit and just have a sense that the world is coming to you. And we can do this with time, too. There's a sense of time unfolding, like we're going into the future. 
but there can be a sense of spaciousness and the present moment is arising in every moment and we're just sitting here and that's a way of investigating and of being interested but it's a non-activity and I know you can't answer this to a certain specific degree but how in the revelation how long do you how long is too long to to look into or to open to something as long before you go into now well, there's 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 two ways to to understand that. One is how much thought is present, and what is your relationship to the thought. If there's not much thought, then it's probably okay. It's really a question of whether you're indulging in the experience or not. Yeah, trying to get something out of the experience. If there's a sense of of neutrality or impartiality. And and interest or innocence, like this is how it is. Then then it's okay. So sometimes we're not with the breath for long periods, and it doesn't mean we're spaced out or thinking. It just means there's something else that's predominant, and we're letting it be what it is. It's become the anchor for the attention. And then when that we can't be skillful with that, or it's no longer predominant, then we'll come back. To our basic anchor of the sensations of the breath and the body. Yeah, it's an art more than a, you know, perfect science. They're good questions, though. Okay, so feel free to stretch out your legs for a moment so we can sit relatively comfortably for about 30 minutes. Once you come into stillness, just let yourself settle into the experience of your body. Encouraging both a sense of ease and relaxation in the body and the quality of wakefulness, uprightness, as if we appreciate this capacity to be right here, right in the middle of things, right in the middle of this moment. And we can begin by opening to the experience of hearing. From the most obvious to the most subtle sounds, about what's making the sounds, just focusing on the vibration of the sound itself, how quickly it comes and goes, changes, 
recognizing the capacity of the mind, the heart, to be receptive. Notice how effortless hearing is. The real effort is in not getting lost, not thinking. But hearing itself is effortless when the mind is not distracted. Now in the same way, becoming sensitive, receptive to the sensations in the body. Just noticing the natural ease, presence of the body, sitting, the full range of sensation, pleasant and unpleasant and all the neutral sensations. Remembering the simple acronym RAIN, learning to recognize in every moment what is most predominant, the predominant sensation in the body. And just receive, just open to what's predominant, knowing it and letting it be. not acting out, just accepting it, letting it reveal itself without any attachment or agenda. The body is like this. No need to fix. No need to hold on. And right here in the body, noticing the sensations of the breath. Beginning to connect with the feeling of each breath. The sensations at the nostrils as the air passes or the movement in the chest or in the abdomen, wherever it's clear. Trusting the body to breathe 
finding its own rhythm Notice how it's possible to become more and more intimate, just like it's possible to become more and more distracted or spaced out. You might find a simple noting technique useful, noting the in and out or rising and falling of each breath, if it helps. Remember the value of an anchor for the attention. So when the mind wanders, return the attention to the body sitting and the breath moving in the body, cultivating a non-distracted, non-judging awareness or con- a continuity of knowing the breath.
whenever a strong experience arises to disturb this continuity of attention with the breath. And just simply notice the disturbance as something happening. See if it's possible to relate to the disturbance, whether it's physical pain or exciting memory, planning. Relate to the disturbance in a skillful way, in a way that leads to clear seeing, this non-distracted, non-reactive openness. Ah, this is how it is. Thinking is like this. Aching is like this. And then when the distraction is no longer compelling, begin again simply resting, opening to the ease, the sensations of the body, and noticing the breath in the body. So let's continue now in silence. Remember that the goal of practice is not to control, but instead to be open or to see clearly how it is, how the body is, how the breath in the body is, and how it gets disturbed by visiting thoughts, pain, another phenomena that comes and goes. possible for these distractions to just become the practice, not to be turned into problems or struggles.
when it seems that the mind is being disturbed, then let the disturbance itself become the object of meditation. Practice opening, not to the content of the thoughts, but to the feeling of being disturbed, the stress or the unpleasantness, the difficulty right here in the moment. Become interested, open, letting it be what it is. Is it possible to accept the way it is completely, letting it be? So for the last minute or two, seeing if it's possible to be undistracted, not struggling with the flow of experience, not spacing out, not pushing it away, not holding on, just letting things be.
your time. Adjust the body as you need to. You can even stand for a few seconds if you'd like. But it's nice, nice not to move too quickly after a sit. There's a famous teaching, I don't know if I gave this uh, particular discourse about Bahia. Did I teach you or tell you that? So the Buddha was going to collect his meal uh, one time, and a man who was a, a wandering ascetic but not a student of the Buddha had heard about the Buddha and sought him out and traveled quite a bit. He was in this particular sect where all they would uh, allow themselves to wear is bark. So it was a particular, very strict ascetic sect in India at the time. And Bahia found the Buddha eventually while he was collecting his alms, his food for the day. You know, they walk around with their bowl and they stand in front of the house. It's not really begging because they just stand there meditating. And if somebody wants to put some food in their bowl, then they do. And if not, after a minute or so, they go to the next house until they have enough food for the day. And then they go back to in the woods where they're staying and eat their food and then practice the rest of the day mostly. Or in the Buddhist case, probably practicing and teaching. Anyway, Bahia asked the Buddha for, for some instruction, you know, that he traveled a long distance, had heard good things about the Buddha. And the Buddha said, you know, this isn't really the proper time for teaching. I'm doing my alms round. It's really a, a walking meditation. Uh, just come see me later. I'm in the woods over here. And Bahia asked him a second time, and the Buddha said the same, gave him the same answer. And then Bahia asked him the third time. And traditionally, I guess at the time, if somebody asks you three times, uh, unless it's uh, improper, you would, you would acquiesce, you'd sort of respond. So the Buddha said, okay, I'll, I'll give you a succinct teaching. So now it's become a very famous teaching because it's so succinct. As it turns out, you know, the third time the Bahia asked, he said, you know, you never know when someone's going to die. You should teach me now. And that's when the Buddha responded. And as it turns out, after the Buddha gave this teaching to Bahia, he was, I think, run over by a wild cow or something like that, and he died. But he got it before, because as he was getting these teachings from the Buddha, he was practicing. He wasn't just listening and taking notes. He was actually practicing what the Buddha was saying. So the Buddha said something like this, When in the seen is merely what is seen. In the heard, it is merely what is heard. In the sensed is merely what is sensed. And the cognized is merely what is cognized. Then, Bahia, you will not be with that caught up, right, in the content or the ideas. When you're not with that, you will not be in that. And when you are not in that, then you will be neither here, nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. So it sounds pretty simple. 
So in the scene is just the scene, right? So right now, just that alone, let's not worry about the rest of the instruction, but just on this level, in the scene is just the scene. Now, is that possible for us, all of us, with our eyes open? We're seeing. Can we let the scene just be the scene? Do you see how difficult it is? It's like we look. You, a lot of you are looking at me. Is it possible to look here and just see black and brown and shape and form without getting caught by our interpretation of the scene? Right? So just seeing and hearing, like you're hearing the voice, just sound. Just hearing is hearing. Seeing is seeing. Hearing is hearing. Now, you may have thoughts, but even thoughts are just thoughts. We're not being confused by the content of our thoughts. So there are thoughts, maybe, and those thoughts are just little blips of mental energy. They're just what they are. They're not more than what they are, but they're also not less than what they are. So if we're not caught by any of our six sense gates, we have the five physical senses and then the mind. These are the six ways I think I told you in Buddhism that we uh, describe any moment of experience. We know the world through these six gates only, thinking and the five physical senses. And if we can leave these alone, that's freedom. It's not about not having these six things. You know, if only I could blind myself and get rid of my sense of hearing, you know, and not think, and not smell or taste, and not have any tactile experience, then I'd be enlightened. So that's not the way. It's to be awake to these six things, but not caught by them. So it doesn't mean that, that even that the personality somehow becomes flat and sort of non-existent. Because what is our personality? It's just a patterns of thought, really. I mean, what else is it? Our personality is just the way our mind is conditioned to see things and to think about things. So this is why in Buddhism there's a strong emphasis on ease. It's like uh, non-attachment, non-agitation, non-struggle is an important barometer. Now it doesn't mean though, like if you're a mom and your kid's running across, a, a messing around in a busy street, it's not, it's not that you sort of take your time. You know, you might run, you might yell, you know. But that there's a sense of uh, that's just what it is. There isn't anything more. There's no trace. So this is the kind of emptiness or ease that the Buddha is talking about. It's a particular kind of ease or emptiness of agitation, emptiness of attachment. So I just bring this up uh, at the beginning of our discussion to check in. Because this is, this is mostly what our practice is about, this particular alchemy of finding ourselves struggling in life, struggling with a moment's experience, whether we're formally sitting or just going about our day, something is arising in the moment, 
and we react, we're struggling, trying to control it, trying to hold on to it, trying to ignore it. And that struggle agitates the mind, burdens the heart. So the way we transform that experience of struggle is to practice opening to the struggle, opening to the aversion, opening to the craving, whatever the particular agitation or struggle is about, and meeting that struggle with non-struggle. So it's not, oh, i got to get rid of the aversion before I can practice, or I have to get rid of the greediness, or the dullness, or the restlessness, or the doubt before I'm free. The freedom is right there in how we relate to anything, including greediness, or aversion, or doubt, or restlessness, or uh, dullness. So this is a great thing in our sitting practice because I'm sure you've noticed we're catching the mind all the time, caught up in some kind of struggle. You know, we're feeling dull or sleepy and we're not liking it. We're feeling hyperactive and restless and we're not liking it. Or we want our mind to be quieter than it is. We're angry that our mind is not quiet. So we're constantly finding ourselves struggling, pushing and pulling in life right there, right with the struggle, just let that, in that moment, be what we practice being free with. Right? Just like the Buddha said, in the scene, it's just the scene. So, whatever that experience is, it's just what it is. So can we, in a way, let it reveal itself, let it be what it is, without it provoking, without it causing, any reaction, any reaction that's unskillful, like aversion or fear or craving or ignoring it. So what thoughts do you have from this week's practice? Questions that have come up for you or maybe you just like to report what you're seeing, what's been seemingly easy for you or seemingly difficult for you. Um, it's really nice to hear from people. I think people learn a lot from hearing how the practice is going from other people. Mm -hmm. Say your names, please. Uh, my name is Jesse. I can grasp the concept of acknowledging a feeling, but I think that's because I'm expecting or assuming that it's going to pass like an itch or a pain. But what about like the chronic pain that's always there? Mm -hmm. I can't really deal with that. And I find myself lashing out of that because I don't want to avoid it. You don't want to accept it, acknowledge everything, but then once I acknowledge that, I stick on that for us to sit. I don't, I don't get past that. Yeah. Well, chronic pain, of course, is a is sort of like an upper level uh, challenge for mindfulness practice. It's not kindergarten practice. It's a it's a in, it's a more difficult challenge, but it works. Mindfulness works. But even like, let's just assume that the chronic pain truly is chronic. It's not. It's not changing. So there's a particular sensory experience, and it's, it's of course, it is changing, but it's, it's uh, sort of repeating, a repeating pattern. So ouch, 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 or achy, 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 or throbbing, 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 or something like that. But what is changing is our way of relating to it. So even though the pain may not be changing in a, a obvious way or in a meaningful way. The way we're relating to the pain is quite...
changeable. And so you may the first thing that gets your attention may be the pain, but what what is more important to notice is how you relate to the pain. Like are you a feeling a victim of the pain? Are you angry at the pain? Then look at that emotional or that pattern of reactivity and see if you can open to that completely. Like to be really clear and awake and allowing, forgiving of that feeling of being a victim or accepting of that feeling of being angry. And notice what happens, not to the chronic pain, but to the, to the way you're relating to it. And then when you have a more neutral way of relating to it, like the more afflictive ways of relating to it aren't there so much, and it's just that steady state of sensory experience, then even look at that. Get more interested in it with a real open mind about what it is. Now, it doesn't mean the chronic pain will go away, but your understanding of what pain is, we have to appreciate the possibility that what we think chronic pain or what we think pain is, is a, uh, is a pretty superficial understanding of what pain is. We think pain is one thing, and we assume that it's true. We don't realize the kind of assumptions that go into that idea we have about pain. There is something called pain, and, and there are, at times, for sure, chronic pain. But it's not necessarily what we think it is superficially. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan? I, I've kind of been trying out that walking meditation that we kind of handed out. It's not really a deep question, but um, kind of around my house, you know, everybody else my house kind of doing their own things. I would like to find a quiet area, and the only area I would find is probably my room. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have a big room. I was wondering, is that is it that, like, am I going to be able to achieve all the, I guess, the things I want to achieve out of that, kind of, kind of relaxing and get myself into the, my state of seated meditation? If I kind of have to like kind of walk and then take a 90 degree turn, then can I walk around my bed? If I, is it necessary to have to walk in a straight, straight up and uh, down path? Because I mean, a lot of times it's the only area where I can kind of get a peace and quiet, and not really have as many distractions as I normally would in other areas of my house. Yeah. Well, you just do what you know. I'm assuming you just have assessed your home, and that's the best place. And in a perfect world, I don't know if I described. You know, you'd have a beautiful forest path that's not actually used for anything but walking meditation and, you know, covered from the sun and no bugs and, you know, nice clay, smooth path that the water runs off of. You know, they get this huge bamboo, long, 100-foot bamboo, and, you know, they put it along the sides of the walking paths to sort of hold the clay up. It's nicely sloped so the water runs off of it without creating little gullies, and it's that nice, smooth earth that they've sort of patted down. And it's just beautiful, but it's not going to happen, at least not very often. So we just have to do with what we have. Um, sometimes hallways work, uh, but if you've got a lot of people in the house, then that won't be appropriate because there's not as much clutter often in the hallways, and you can get a little bit more distance. But generally, you know, it's nice if you can have at least 12 to 16 feet and then turn around and then the other way. But if you have to do sort of a circle, it may be better just to turn around. In other words, don't do that circle, but just go back and forth, even if it's just a few steps. Because it, it it's not really important 
as long as you're making the stopping, the turning, the stopping, and the stepping, that whole transition, part of your practice. And of course, it's just, you know, the mind will be more stimulated to think because when you get in a groove with walking, then you're in a groove with walking. You know, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And then you just have to really use the stopping, like really use that as a moment of mindfulness. Like, get, receive the experience of stopping. And then receive the experience of turning, 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 stopping, stopping. You know, maybe even a few seconds of noticing standing. And then go again, lifting, moving, placing. And what we're trying to do, just like with the breath, see more and more details of the breath. So when the mind isn't being disturbed, then we're really cultivating that continuity of attention with the anchor. So with the breath, it means, you know, just seeing not just a breath, but seeing the very beginning of the in-breath, and the middle, and the end of the in-breath, and that little gap before the out-breath, and then the beginning of the out-breath, the middle of the out-breath, the very end. And it's the same with the walking. Like, what does it feel like as the heel begins to lift up? And the foot rises, and that swinging forward, and that sense of dropping, and then the contact, and then the pressing, and then the lifting, the lifting, the lifting, the swinging, the placing and pressing. So you just try to see as many details. Now, it's not easy to do it that slowly, especially when your mind's used to going really fast. So that's what's nice about a longer path, is that your beginning pace might be more like a normal walking pace. Stepping, 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 stepping. But as you settle in and the mind becomes a little more quiet and relaxed, then you might naturally notice you're just walking a little slower. And then you start noticing more details. But when you have a short distance, you can't really walk at a normal pace. But that's okay. You just do what you can. Yeah, that's what I was noticing. Like, say it's just a short distance, I kind of like get kind of in a rhythm a little bit. And then I kind of get to the point where I like, well, kind of got tourists, then I kind of break up the rhythm. Yeah. So I, I, you know, sometimes I was able to do it, but a lot of times that that turn kind of... Yeah. You know, sometimes I'm lucky. I got a kind of nice long hallway to do it, but a lot of times it seems to be kind of busy so if you need like a, if a faster pace you might instead just do the walk around the block and just what one way to do it if you're and you know you don't want to walk slowly because people will think you're weird so you just walk at a normal pace but here's a, a different version of walking practice. So the one you got last week, if you didn't get it last week, I have the copies, the handout from last week up here. But another version when you're walking at a normal pace is just to, did I mention this last week? Um, alternate between seeing, hearing, and moving. So, so you like 20 seconds or so, approximately, you just give yourself completely to the visual experience. You're not looking around. But you're just receiving the visual experience as you're walking, even at nighttime, just seeing. And so to support that continuity of attention of seeing, you might just repeat in your mind, seeing, seeing. So you're just whispering in your mind. You're not saying it out loud. Seeing. Just as a reminder to give yourself completely to the experience of seeing. Then after 20 seconds or so, just shift to hearing. Do exactly the same thing with the sense of hearing. Completely open, give yourself to experience of hearing. And then the third is moving. So you're just 
giving yourself to the tactile experience, the sensory experience of the body moving, which includes the stepping. But you're not even, you're just receiving the whole experience of the body moving. And then go back to seeing, hearing, moving, like that. So you're just rotating through those six sense gates while you maybe walk around the block once or twice. And then you might be already kind of in your meditation, try to continue as you, you know, get up to your room. And then you might be ready to do more slow walking because you've already kind of quieted the mind down. So that's another way. Now, of course, we can use that whenever you're walking from the parking lot to your office, you can do the seeing, hearing, moving meditation, right? Because no one will know. And it's just a way not to spend that time worrying or thinking or planning, but to use it to really ground yourself in the present moment and take a vacation from all of the agitation that worrying and planning and comparing and judging and whatever else we do with our mind does to us. It's a real break. And these little things can help you. And just, you know, whenever you're going from the bathroom to your office or wherever you, whatever you do, just, you don't even need to do it as a formal meditation, but just drop into the experience of the body. Drop into the experience of seeing, into hearing. It will really change your lives, these ordinary ways of practicing mindfulness. And I'll talk more about that in week six. But you don't need to wait to week six to start practicing. Thanks, Ryan. Other questions? Matt? Uh, my name's Matt. Uh, I've been noticing during some of my practices, I've been kind of struggling with following what I feel like into this the day's experience. But tonight I didn't. And I noticed, though, um, from previous practices also, that visual images will come into my mind. And I just kind of wonder what you think about that. And you know, that's also just the mind unfolding. Mm-hmm. I'm a very visual person, so. Yeah, yeah. The mind unfolds either as thought or as images. So, yeah, and so the first thing is just to notice that that's how it is. And if you want to not get confused by it, you can even say in your mind, seeing. Because actually you're seeing. Even if your eyes are closed, you're literally seeing your thoughts or seeing images in your mind. So just say that. Just acknowledge that whether you actually say the word seeing in your mind or not. Just acknowledge Ah, seeing. This is just seeing, and it's like this. As opposed to what we'll normally do is we'll get attached or uh, engaged with the images in the mind. So it's it's really having a more neutral understanding. Oh, this is just thoughts, images being known, and it's like this. And then come back to the breath, and if you find that they're pretty disturbing, meaning like you tend to get caught up in the images, then you might just see practicing with your eyes slightly open, just gazing toward the floor in front of you, whether that is uh, more conducive to mindfulness than having your eyes closed. Because for some people who have a lot of images, they find that helpful. They have the eyes slightly open. But ultimately, it's good to be able to work with the images, like to know that they're there and to return, and to know that they're there and to return. Yeah. The hearing really helps. You mentioned the hearing. So tonight I really pay attention to the hearing, and that really opened up for the whole experience. Oh, good. It really kept me with staying in meditation and not drifting with the thoughts. 
Yeah, and so Matt's point is, you know, we have six sense gates that we can practice mindfulness with. The breath is just part of tactile sensations, right? So that's just a subset of feeling the body. But the important thing is to stay in the moment and to use whatever's predominant or whatever we can use in the present moment to stay open and non-reacting, non-judging with experience. So, like Matt suggested, sometimes it's really useful, especially if you're feeling sort of oppressed and heavy in your practice, then just open to the experience of hearing. And you might just find that the mind likes being mindful of hearing. Other times, people are mindful of hearing, their mind just gets scattered and spacey. And so that's not a good, it's maybe better to really focus in on the predominant physical experience in the body or the breath in the body. So it's like medicine, you know, what's the good medicine for tonight to keep us in the game, keep us in the moment? Lewis? Um, I, I found it kind of interesting that this was probably the first time I have actually felt disturbed. Um, I think normally I tend not to feel comfortable in closed, dense, crowded spaces. And tonight, there's more room. <laughs> and what I became aware of was, I was like, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but just being very aware of the field of this room and just everything that's here, everybody that's here. And it felt kind of overwhelming. <clears throat> I wanted to get away from it, but... There you were. <laughs> Good. This is exactly what we want to happen because we all have ways of managing our experience. And as we practice mindfulness, we're practicing exposure. I mean, that's what we're practicing. We're practicing being open and undefended with the way things are. And that's that will provoke uh, deeper and deeper, in a sense, more subtle but also, in a sense, more profound reactions. And because fundamentally, as an ego being, we want to be safe and protected. And what that means for each of us is different. Like, what safe and protected means for you is one thing. For another thing, it's a different, you know, it's a different experience. Like, some people, they need to have a lot of noise and a lot of people around them before they feel safe. And other people freak out when they're in a, you know, around that kind of a situation just as a, a gross example. So, but regardless of how we are particularly conditioned, when we practice, guaranteed, something will annoy us, something will provoke us. And that's exactly what we want to happen. So when that feeling of feeling, when that experience of being oppressed by the psychic and other activity in the room, you know, when that arises, then it's a perfect opportunity to receive it, to, to practice being undefended. Like, this is how it is. And now the mind will want to fixate on the externals, like all of the people here in this room, you know, or how does that door actually open, you know, like, how could I get out? So the mind will want to fixate on specific things, but what we want to do is actually turn specifically to the disturbance in the heart, like how, 
How is the heart feeling burdened right now, oppressed right now, overwhelmed right now? You know, whatever the particular quality. And to become interested in that, willing to explore that. And if we get too overwhelmed, we won't be able to do it. So we want to find the edge where it's clear, this pattern, this disturbance is clear enough that we can see it and be with it but not overwhelmed by it. And if you start feeling overwhelmed, like you can't really open to it, then maybe change your awareness. It's like make your awareness not just as big as this room, but as big as the block. You know, and just, because actually, you're not just in the room, you're in Minnesota, or even better, you're on this planet Earth, in this galaxy. So we can have any perspective we want. And the mind out of habit maybe takes this particular perspective, and we have a particular reaction to it. So give yourself a bigger perspective. And this is where hearing actually can be quite useful because it tends to be a wider, broader anchor for the mindfulness. So you can try that, see if that is useful. Or sometimes it's more useful to really get specific, like really feel just the quality of coolness as the air passes by the nostrils and the quality of warmth as it goes out or just that touching sensation, just to get really interested in that, wholeheartedly interested in that, may cause you to drop the anxiety, and you get a little break. But ultimately, you want to return to that edge and learn to make peace with it. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to make that pattern, that pattern of being to react to crowds, that all of a sudden you're going to start to like crowds. It's not that. It means that the feeling of claustrophobia will be what it is, but your way of relating to it will be much more skillful. It won't necessarily be a problem. There still may be claustrophobia, the feeling of, of whatever that is, but it doesn't necessarily mean it will be a problem if you practice with it. And that's how we become free in the world. You know, We all have things that push our buttons, and we could spend our life running from those things, and we might be relatively successful, or we can practice with them and learn how to be in difficult experience. And then when we get really good about being in difficult experience, the bigger challenge, and I might have mentioned this already, is to be in really pleasant experience. You think it's hard to be with difficult experience. It's even harder to be relaxed and open and allowing when things are really pleasant. Notice. Watch yourself the next time. Watch your mind. It's the next time you're in a really pleasant situation. And you'll see the mind is not relaxed. The mind is really tight. And you'll just see. Just watch. And we'll talk about that. Uh, I won't be here next week. Gail Iverson is going to be covering the class for me. I'll be leading a residential retreat. Uh, Gail is one of our leaders and teachers here. And she'll be uh, teaching the class on loving kindness as well as continuing with the mindfulness practice but bringing in this complementary practice of loving-kindness. Um, and she'll be talking more about that next week. But you can bring this point up with Gail next week, observing, being mindful of moments of pleasantness. Because mostly what we've been talking about the last four weeks is like how to work with difficult experience. But it's also very interesting and uh, insightful to bring the mindfulness into pleasant experiences. Like even in our city practice, just being really calm. That's a pleasant experience. Notice that. Mm -hmm. 
Dave and Paul. Um, I was wondering, uh, I didn't quite get everything you said about the chronic pain and how to deal with that. Yeah. Well, chronic pain is like everything else. It's one thing, and then our reaction to it is another. And so, first we understand there is chronic pain, and if we are able to have enough stability with that, then we start noticing there's a lot more going on, which is the not liking of the chronic pain, the feeling of victim of it. So we're trying to tease out the different things that are happening in the moment. There's the pain. Well, what actually is the chronic pain apart from our reaction to it? Normally, we group the two things together. We group the sensations of the pain, which is just intensity. And that may be a better word to use than pain. There is just an intense uh, physical experience happening, right? And then there's a reaction to that intense physical experience. And we generally group them together. But we want to tease them apart. And we see this is the intensity. And this is my way of relating to it, my reaction to it. And just see. And whatever seems to be more predominant, practice letting it be what it is and see. And you might want to really note it here so you don't get lost in it. Oh, intensity. Intensity. Intense sensations are like this. And if you can be specific about it, you know, maybe it's aching, maybe it's burning, maybe it's quivering, you know, whatever it is. See if you can get right to to it and be okay with it. And it's the same thing with any pattern, the not liking, feeling the victim. Now, generally, there's a lot more suffering involved in our reactions to pain than the pain itself. And you just see if this is true for you. Our not liking the pain is much worse than the pain itself. This is almost always the case. So you want to look at the reaction. You want to be mindful of the reaction. Now, being mindful of the reaction, like the not liking, the hating, right? That's so hating is an activity. Just like anything, it's something that can be observed. Anything that's an activity can be observed with the mind that knows, with mindfulness, right? So we actually look, and you know, not we're not actually looking, but you know what I mean. We're opening to the experience of hating as something happening in the present moment. What is the experience of hating, not liking, right? What is that? That's an important thing to know directly. If we can know hating, then we can let it go. We can't let it go unless we see it clearly. So when you say letting it go, it'll still be there, but you're not paying attention? No, no. But we don't let it go. It just falls away when we see it clearly. So here's another experiment. Is it possibly possible to be fully mindful of an afflictive mind state like hating or craving without it falling away? Mindfulness transforms afflictive mind states. You can't be lost in your anger and mindful of it at the same time. If you're mindful of anger, it's not anger anymore. It's mindfulness of anger. But what you experience is the mindfulness. See, it doesn't matter what you're being mindful of. Being mindful is synonymous with freedom. Even if you're being mindful of anger. Now, don't believe me. Just check this out. When you're fully mindful of anything, even in an afflictive state, it's a 
it's a wonderful experience to be mindful. Because being mindful is like being the space of this room. It doesn't matter what's going on in the space of the room. Mindfulness is the space of awareness. And it's not affected by what's being known in the space of awareness. So that's what we do. We don't get confused, but we become mindful of what's predominant. So when we're not liking the chronic pain, actually what's predominant in that moment isn't the pain, it's the not liking of it. But it's not so easy because we get confused by the pain. So first we have to stop being confused by really understanding pain. This is just intense physical experience coming and going here and now. This is the not liking of it. This is the wishing it would go away. This is feeling it's not fair that this is happening to me. This is the story. Ah, ah, can I see this? Can I open to this? Can I let the hating, the not liking, just be what it is? And what we find is that it becomes a, not a problem. But just see for yourself what it becomes. When you really can discern the not liking of the chronic pain. But it's not easy. It takes practice because we'll keep, what we do is we bounce back and forth. We, we look at the pain and we let it be the cause for anger to arise. And then we look at the anger and we say, yeah, I'm angry because of the pain. So we look at the pain and there's the anger. We look at, and there's this dance between the reaction and the pain. And the Buddha calls this samsara, the cycles of suffering, where we're lost in a, a feedback loop, basically. And it just goes on and on. Is it, this, is that, does that imply that my attitude toward an unpleasant experience will feed it or not? Yeah, the way of relating, the way of understanding. Yeah, the presence or absence of wisdom. So without wisdom, we relate to pain with aversion. It's just how we've been programmed. Wisdom means we no longer relate to pain with aversion. We relate to pain with openness. That's the key to freedom. If we're a creature of habit, we're going to relate to pain with aversion and pleasantness with attachment, with uh, wanting, craving. And with neutrality, with ignorance. We're going to ignore neutrality. That's what we do as human beings when we don't have wisdom. We ignore anything that's neutral. We try to hold on to things that are pleasant and we push away things that are unpleasant, strike out against it. That's what we do. And wisdom, so the development of spiritual wisdom means that there's another option, which is to be open to pleasant, to be open and clear with neutral, and to be open and clear with unpleasant. Right? And there's a lot of freedom there, which we can discover directly in our practice. And so this is what you want to look for as insight. Not in the most difficult places of your life or the most pleasant places of your life. Start with really ordinary unpleasant experiences and ordinary pleasant experiences that are not so challenging. Because there you see some real success. You're going to see that you can be with ordinary unpleasant experiences like an itch or some pain in the back. And, and you'll really be able to do this where you see it and you see your tendency to react to it. And you can be open to the pain in the back and open, non-reactive, to the not liking of it. And the whole thing, 
meaning the whole idea that it's a problem disappears. It's not a problem anymore. There may or may not be pain, but it's not a problem. It's just what it is. It's a moment of being mindful of the way it is. And that is a moment of freedom. A moment of mindfulness is truly a moment of freedom. That's how you know when you have a moment of mindfulness. Most of what we do are preliminaries, so that every once in a while there's a real moment of mindfulness and a moment of freedom. And that inspires us. Hey, maybe there's something to this practice. And then we cultivate it more. We're basically planting seeds for moments of mindfulness, which are moments of freedom. Freedom meaning being free to be Mark in the world as it is. So it's not like freedom, like somehow I've escaped the world. It's like being in the world with this personality, with these conditions, this, these duties and responsibilities that I have. How, there, how can there be freedom with this life as it is? Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Travis. Um, I have a question regarding working with um, thoughts during uh, practice, uh, particularly uh, planning. Uh, I find myself, for example, um, you know, I'm sitting and the thought arises, I need to uh, bring something uh, to make sandwiches at a friend's house on Saturday. And so I start thinking uh, cucumbers and cheese. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, oh, you know, planning. And at that point, that's where I get stumped. At that point, do I want to stop and say, oh, I was just planning. Now I should go back to the breath. Or do I want to try to watch myself continue to plan? Or Yeah, okay. So noting can be a very nice technique in these situations. So just explore and see if it's useful for you. But whether you note the experience or not, we're all noticing what's happening. And that's the key. So when you first notice that planning is happening, then notice what happens when you notice that planning is happening. So there's a there's planning, and then at some moment, a, mi a moment of mindfulness arises, and there's a recognition. Oh, planning. Then notice what happens. So do you know what happens when you notice there is planning? Um, well, that's when I kind of start wondering what to do next, I guess. <laughs> so what is that? What is that? Um, my uh, initial plan is to just uh, calmly go back to the no, no, but what was that? What, what did you just say a moment ago? Because you said what happened, but did you notice it? You were doubtful. You were confused, right? So that's the next thing to notice. So first, uh, there was uh, planning, and then you noticed the planning, and then something else happened, which was you were confused about what to do with your practice. That's what happened. So then you want to notice that, oh, doubt or confusion. Confusion's like this. Then notice what happens. Right? And you can always drop into the experience of the body. If you're feeling overwhelmed or don't know what to do, that's your default. Just drop the awareness into the body. Oh, yeah, sitting. Sitting is like this. And then when you really get clear, here's the body sitting, then the mind can be more subtle, and you'll notice the movement of the breath, which is the more specific anchor in the body, right? And you just... So you can always come back. There's nothing wrong with that. But... When you can, notice that whole sequence of seeing the uh, planning, seeing the confusion, and then seeing the return to the body. Oh, sitting. 
What a relief to get away from that confusion. Because if you were really clear, you could have seen confusion, and then the aversion to the confusion, right? There's confusion, and then there's the not liking, or maybe you're humiliated because you're confused. I should know what to do, but I don't. You know? And you go, oh, this humiliation. And it's like this. And then, oh, come back to the body. Yeah. And if, when, in moments we even see the intention, like the intention to come back to the body. Before we actually come back, we'll notice, intending to come back. Ah, the body's like this. So there's like, just like in a step, we can notice so many things. And in an inhale, inhalation, we can notice so many things. Also with thinking, we can notice so many things. And sometimes there'll be so many things, there's no way we could even note them because they happen so quickly. But that doesn't mean we can't notice them. You know, we don't need to define what we're seeing. We don't need to comment or tell ourselves what we're seeing. It's the mindfulness is enough. So don't, sometimes we get stumbled, uh, we stumble because we think we have to tell us, we, like somehow we have to report to ourselves what we're seeing. And that's one of the downsides about the noting technique. So don't fall into that trap. You don't need to use the noting technique. Just use it when it's useful and helpful. The important thing is to actually notice, just to know what's going on. That's all we have to do, nothing more. Just to know. Oh, confusion. Mm-hmm. Maya, is it? Um, you keep saying come, you know, come back to the body. And that's kind of more what, where you should start from. Sometimes I have trouble even just doing math. That I, it's almost like I'm watching myself somewhere. That I'm not here. I'm watching myself experience something. Yeah. And I can't even like, focus. This is me. This is what I'm feeling. That it's, I'm somewhere else and I'm watching it happen. You're, you're somewhere else and watching the body happen? Yeah, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like seeing myself sitting. Yeah. Well, if you're actually seeing yourself sitting, then notice the scene. But if, you, if there's just a sense that you're witnessing the sensations, like you're on a platform and out there are the sensations of the body, then you can actually notice the experience of witnessing. You can just say, oh, observing is like this, or knowing is like this. So you're, you're actually looking at the experience of knowing. And then, and then at times, too, see if you can get interested, like whatever it is. It could be something as simple as the buttocks against the cushion. And it's just like you're bringing the knowing and what is being known, the object and subject together. And you just, in a playful way, don't make this a heavy trip, but just have a sense of, the knowing and the subject coming together, like an intention to be intimate, to be really exposed to that experience of pressure or contact. Like, I don't need to be the witness of it. Why not just let contact be contact, pressure be pressure, and let everything else fall into the background? So we're not actually pushing things away. It's more about like letting the pressure as an experience reveal itself, let it bloom, fill the mind. Because, you know, the mind is completely relative in this way. We can have a very broad, uh, spacious thing where we're seeing the whole universe, and we can, the mind can kind of really go to one thing. It doesn't matter what that one thing is, and everything else disappears. So that's okay. We can practice that way sometimes. And most of it is just uh, like realizing how little we know about experience, about how it is. And that curiosity, that natural childlike 
uh, awe and innocence will be really useful in mindfulness because it, it energizes our practice. We're actually interesting, interested in exploring, discovering how it is, the body, the mind, everything in between. And here we have to leave it. Good questions. A lot of what I wanted to bring up tonight came out in the questions. But please, uh, when you get a chance, go through the four steps to working with obstacles. And I'll ask Gail to review this next week when she meets with you uh, next Thursday. And I'll be back for week six when we'll be talking about uh, integrating practice in daily life as well as continuing our conversation about our sitting practice. So have a good week of practice, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.